0: The Social Work Journal podcast is a place of healing that normalizes everyday experiences through the exploration of evidence-based practice, theory, peer-reviewed journals, literature, articles, research, and a little pop culture. For further context throughout each episode, I will also share my own personal experiences. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into the Social Work Journal podcast. I'm your host, Del Tom, and today we have Kirsten Kelly from Problem with Authority. How are you, Kirsten? Good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. So today we have an interesting topic. We're actually going to talk about adversity and what it means So, you know, usually when we start the podcast, we always define the topic. So adversity, simply put, is difficulties or misfortune. So have you ever experienced adversity? And can you think of a time where you had to overcome adversity?
1: Yes. So when I was in high school, I was a top student, top 25, worked really hard, had a lot of extracurricular activities, volunteered a lot, you know, to get build my resume to apply to some big universities here in Florida, such as Florida State University and University of Florida. And I ended up not getting in, which was super devastating. But it worked out in the end because I ended up going to community college. I saved a lot of money. I was able to graduate earlier than the rest of my peers in my cohort. So if I would have never had like such a big I guess, quote unquote, failure, you would say, I mean, it wasn't really a failure, but in a lot of people's eyes, it was because, you know, the, the culture of going to a four year university and that being like the top achievement, as soon as you graduate high school, I would have never have like problem solved and been able to cope through it. And now I feel like anything that comes my way, I have a little bit more uh, experience under my belt on how to handle a similar situation. Yeah. And that's an interesting point. Because I was reading this
0: article, Do We Actually Grow From Adversity? Now, one of the things they said is sometimes it's hard to tell if people actually grow from adversity because people don't always remember all the details of the traumatic event. But when I look at this other Mm -hmm. article, Emotional Well-Being, The Benefits of Adversity, they say that a lot of times people who are never challenged by life, they don't have the opportunity to learn how to overcome adversity And when you learn how to overcome adversity, you learn coping strategies, which is what you were talking about, basically that, Mm -hmm. yeah, you didn't get into the university that you wanted to attend, but you learn how to problem solve, which is a great coping strategy so that you could still get to that final destination. And then you actually ended up coming out on top because you graduated early. And in this article, they Mm -hmm. also highlight that people feel competent after they make it through that adversity, which it sounds like that's what your experience was.
1: Exactly. Because I ended up getting into Florida State later on. It just wasn't in my timing that, you know, I thought that it needed to happen. So going into my undergrad and then graduate school, I just felt a little bit more prepared.
0: Yeah. And you went straight through, huh?
1: I did. I did.
0: That's amazing. I took like a seven year break. (laughs) And then when I got to grad school, I was like, oh my God, why did I do that? I don't know if I can do this. I actually my first paper I went to that where they have the writing center and Mm their paper. And I was crying. And so the girl said, Well, why don't you read your paper and let's, you know, see where we can make some changes. And I started reading it and she said, I'm going to stop you right there so clearly you have a strong command of the English language. So what are your specific questions? So it ended up being more of a counseling session because she was like, I think you're just nervous. There's nothing wrong with you.
1: Right. Right. And that, that definitely comes into it. Like, what do you, what do you face? Like for you, that would be like, you're facing, like you left the collegiate world for a few years and now you're back and you're like, oh my gosh, the the girl's like, you're fine. You're just nervous. So then going into your other experiences, you're like, I got this. I've done it before. I can do it again.
0: Right, exactly. Here's a question for you. Do you think that uh, children are more resilient than adults as it pertains to coping with adversity?
1: Yes, children just have it different than adults do. They have people to lean on, more adults to lean on they have less responsibility. I mean, actually that could be arguably, you know, sometimes kids do have a little more responsibility, but there's less pressure, I think for, for them when it comes to, you know, you don't have to take care of a household. You don't have to, you're not expected to have a job. So they're, when they go through things, they have more of a system around them to lean on and, and support them through it.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that you said that because I was looking at this article on adversity, and it was from the Center for the Developing Child at Harvard University. And they say that resilience is evident when a child's health and development tips towards positive outcomes, even when a heavy load of factors stacked on the negative outcome side. So they said the single most common factor for children who develop resilience is at least one stable, committed relationship with a supportive parent, caregiver, or other adults. Because like you said, Mm -hmm. we have someone to kind of model for them, those behaviors. And they say that also too, with the parent relationship, if they do have a stable parent that they can rely on, that parent can scaffold for them. So instead of them trying to learn how to deal with adversity all at once, they're actually breaking up the skills that you need to cope with adversity into chunks. And they're giving them tools and structure within each trunk. So that kind of helps the child learn you know, at a slower rate. And they also learn to plan and monitor, which is part of executive functioning. So that helps them regulate their behaviors when they're experiencing high stress from adversity. Can you relate to that?
1: Yes, because as an adult, I feel like we are put in more... We're not put in more situations, but we can put ourselves in more situations where we isolate ourselves. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, it's normal for you to need an adult to help guide you through a situation. But once you become an adult, it's like taboo to like lean on your friends or your family or a therapist. You're supposed to just have it all figured out at all times. So then I think we, we then internalize what we're going through. And then we, a lot of us might tap into those maladaptive coping strategies that we, we might've developed as kids. And then we're not able to really move forward and overcome what we need to overcome because it's not, it's not normalized for us to seek help.
0: Right. That's, that's true. Now, do you think that your parents or your friends played a role in your ability to overcome adversity? And can you think of a time in your life where a family or a peer gave you advice that stuck with you?
1: Yes. So my mom was super big on teaching us how to problem solve from a young age. Even with my sister, like other, I would see other kids and their parents, like they would get involved in like, you know, just sibling stuff. Like you, you messing with each other, you having arguments, but my mom was really big on once she taught us the skills that she was like, listen, okay, you know, the skills you guys need to sit there sit down and you need to figure it out. And we weren't allowed to like leave the room until we figured it out for each other. So whether that was an apology, whether that was using I statements, whether that was um, dividing up the toys and timing, I get five minutes and then she would get five minutes with it. So from a young age that taught me how to problem solve and just, and, and deal with situations on my own. And that may seem tiny, but that those skills translate to so many different aspects of a person's life and they grow with you as you get older for different situations. My mom would always tell me that there's always more than one way to do something. And I think that I really held on to that, especially too. Like when I didn't get into that four year university the first time I was like, after I cried a lot and felt down about myself, I was like, there's more than one way to do this and let's just do it that way and humble myself and push through.
0: Yeah, that's great. And also, too, I think kind of what you're describing is like stress, but it's short term. It's not something that's going to stick with you for a long period of time because it's situational. Right. But I found this article also from the Center for the Developing Child from Harvard University, and they talk about toxic stress and toxic stress is a little different because it's when stress responses are extreme and they're long lasting And sometimes this can result in the child's ability to cope being damaged and weakened systems in the brain structure. Also, there's lifelong repercussions. So they are saying that when a child is experiencing toxic stress, they still need the support of a parent. But they do want you to keep in mind that toxic stress can be things like, you know, experiencing death or you know, experiencing abuse, and, you know, maybe disease. So these mm-hmm. are a little bit harder to overcome than typical stressors that are situational. Oh, for, mm-hmm. Now, there's another article, and it's about post traumatic growth, conceptual foundations and empirical evidence. And this was actually, there's two theorists who wrote this article, and they did research back in the 90s, And their names are Mm Calhoun Hadeschi, (laughs) so hard to say that name. And they talk about how survivors of traumatic events, they need to go through some of these traumatic events because it actually helps them kind of test interpersonal relationships. And some of those relationships will pass. Some of them will fail. But it gives people more comfort with a sense of intimacy you know, and then they have greater compassion for others who've gone through traumatic events. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So you're saying that somebody that has gone through toxic stress or traumatic event, when it comes to their interpersonal relationships later on in life, that the trauma like has helped them be able to navigate that and have compassion for people. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. Like you with adversity, I think at some point comes gratitude because you're put, you know, depending on like the level of adversity, you're put in a position to, to really hurt and not know what to do and not have, not feel like you have a way out. And then I think once you ever overcome that, you have a, a gratefulness for life and then also compassion for other people that are going through that now that, you know, or, Have gone through it in the past, just like you. And then also, when it comes to you navigating those interpersonal relationships, you already have identified what works for you and what doesn't work for you. So you can lean on those past experiences to know what would be healthy and maybe what wouldn't be healthy.
0: Yeah. And you know what? I'm actually going to post a chart that they made in their article but they talk about how systemic events can lead to challenges, which can lead to rumination, self-disclosure, and then later it can lead to enduring distress, post-traumatic growth, which is their theory, and wisdom. So I'll post that on my blog for those of you who are curious, but getting more into that post-traumatic growth theory, which is PTG by Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun, they say that there are Five ways that you can grow from post-traumatic stress. So renewed appreciation for life, enhanced personal strength, stronger, more meaningful relationships, which we touched on earlier, spiritual growth, and recognizing new paths for your life. Are there any points there that kind of touched you a little bit?
1: I would say that the spiritual growth one is, I I thought, interesting because yeah a lot of times when you're facing adversity we seek people think of think of it's almost like magic in a way like what i've heard especially people how they've made it out of of those situations and what they held on to knowing that they could get on the other side of things which i think is a a really beautiful thing like not necessarily is it religious but just it, it could be just spiritual in the sense of like they felt their presence of like their loved one, you know, holding them through the situation when they no longer had them, you know, things like that. I think that's, that really just touches back on like just the beauty of life and connections that we make with each other and, and how our brains work to, to get us through those hard times.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of spirituality, you know, they say that you can grow from stress when you reframe stress as a challenge because it can make you more focused instead of fearful. And then that makes you release a mm-hmm. different ratio of stress hormones. So maybe an event that in the past was extremely stressful to you now is not that stressful. You're like, oh, that's not a big deal. And, we, and we've we all kind of experienced that, right? The things that were so stressful right. for you when you were younger or when you were less experienced with something, now you're like, oh, that's not really a big deal. So I don't know. Do you have anything mm-hmm. in mind when you think of a time where like you've overcome adversity to the point where something became really just easy to you now, or it's, it's just not traumatic anymore.
1: Yeah. I think like, let me think. The first thing I thought of when you said that was driving, like getting, <laughs> getting your driver's license. It's not really adversity, but it's terrifying. And then now you just do it like, you know, it's nothing. Like when you were starting to learn, but in more specific to like facing an adverse experience. I think losing loved ones at a young age for me, like, and animals, loved ones and animals. I think the more that it happens, I I wouldn't necessarily say that it gets easier, but I think, you know, you know what to expect. Right. And no, you kind of know how you're going to react in the situation with which helps with your grieving process. You're like, okay, now I might be in the denial stage for a little bit. And then I know I'm going to move towards the next one. And then I'm going to be stubborn and I'm not going to want to get to acceptance. Like, you know, and that helps that helps every time that it happens, but does it make it easier? I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's still not, it's still hard and it's not fun, but there's a comfort.
0: Yeah. And you know, to this day, just speaking of trauma, because I experienced my first loss uh, when I was seven years old. My grandpa died and I went to the funeral and I saw my sister faint. And I remember my dad telling me that when people faint, sometimes they can die if they don't like come to. And my sister had fainted and she was out for mm-hmm. a while and they got out the spelling mm-hmm. sense. And that traumatized me so bad that like when I was a teenager, I think my grandma on my dad's side died when I was 16 of breast cancer. And then my grandma on my mom's side, I think she died when I was about 17. I could not go to their funeral because it was just too wow. traumatizing for me. And everybody was like, oh, you know, they really will like it if you would go to their funeral. I'm sure your grandmas will be happy about that. And I, I just couldn't go. And I've never been to my grandmother on my dad's side. I've never been to her gravesite. I think I may have gone to my grandma's gravesite, but it was way later. I probably was mm-hmm. in my early twenties.
1: Oh, wow. I yes. mean, that makes sense. Like watching a loved one, like you're already there grieving somebody and then a, your sister passes out. And as a kid, you're like, oh my gosh, like they, they might not come back from that. Mm-hmm. And then now for funerals ever since then it's, Cause you're already experiencing something terrible. Like you don't want to have like a double, a double hit. And I feel like your body's like already has that. Cause I am a big believer in like how our, where our body like carries the trauma and your body's like, Nope, I can't do both. And so you're like, let me just avoid it. And that's hard, especially too, when we. When it comes to things, especially like grief, like everybody handles it in their own way. But it's hard when there's that pressure from like family members on like how the correct way to do things or what would be respectful of the lost one. But then you also have to like know your boundaries so that you can be okay to be able to process it in the best way for you and in your own time. Because yeah. that, that could cause more toxic stress if you don't, like if you would have gone and listened to your family members.
0: Yeah, exactly. I don't know how I would have reacted. I mean, I think now that I'm a little older, not a little older, I'm a lot older. Let's not talk about my age. <laughs> but now that I'm older, I think I could go to a funeral. But, you know, if people are like being really dramatic, I probably would have to leave early because I just I can't take all that. Oh, God and cried and all that stuff. I always say, you know what? When I die, please don't waste money on burying me. Just cremate me. Just do a celebration of life. Don't put up a picture of me when I'm old. Put up a picture of me when I was young and beautiful. <laughs> and I want people to remember <laughs> who I was in my spirit, you know, when I was like at my best. I don't want people to remember me like when I was old and like disintegrating. <laughs> I always say that and I just, you know, throw my ashes in the ocean and let's move on. I don't want a whole service or anything like that because I want people to move on with their life because I'm gone.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think I growing up, the funerals that I've been to have been more. There was one that wasn't really celebration of life and I hated it. And it was an open casket and that was traumatizing. That was traumatizing in itself don't take your kids to those like every anybody who's listening like they're just not they're they're not I, I don't understand that I I really don't but I do the celebration of life you do you laugh and you cry and you're able to to be in community with everybody and and move forward instead of you know wearing all black and and you know that whole it just brings it brings everybody down yeah So the final
0: article that I want to discuss, they actually kind of compare, you know, stress responses to, you know, experiencing trauma and adversity. And so the name of the article is sensitization or inoculation, investigating the effects of early adversity on personality traits and stress experiences in adults. So I think when they were actually creating this article, they had in mind the five-factor personality Trait mm-hmm. openness, yeah, ocean. Yeah. Open to experience, extroversion, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And so, there's some mm-hmm. little fun facts in here. So, just to explain, because some of you guys might be like, "What is neuroticism?" Neuroticism is like your disposition when you experience negative things to kind of have like a negative outlook. Whenever you experience something that reminds you of that negative thing, or you might experience anxiety when you get reminded of that negative thing, you might be more self-conscious or irritable, or you might experience some emotional instability or depression. So it's basically like a maladaptive response to trauma that you experienced before and experiencing something similar to it again and kind of reminding you of that. So when some of these fun facts in this article, they say that A study reported that individuals who experience extremely horrifying or frightening events display increased neuroticism, decreased agreeableness, and decreased openness. (laughs) Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you're going through something hard, especially if if you've not had a lot of adversity, I can see where you're like... Uh, like, why is this happening? Like, this is such an inconvenience. Like, just having that maladapted like, outlook on the situation instead of a different person that has gone through things like that before. They're like, oh, I got this. It's a learn. It's, you know, we live and we learn. It's a part of life. And, you know, we can do it again. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. And you know something, I think that when I think of a time That was really difficult for me where I experienced adversity. I think I could have become more neurotic, but I just thank goodness that I didn't. It took a lot of self-disclosure, which is like ruminating with other people. And it took Mm -hmm. a lot of ruminating for me to get to that place of like wisdom. But I'll go ahead and tell you my story. So when I was in grad school, I had actually just gotten promoted to like a corporate position at my job. And there was someone there who was like, you know, an executive, kind of like a director, and they had agreed to oversee my internship. Well, unbeknownst to me, my supervisor and this person had like kind of this unspoken agreement between them two. I don't know if it was unspoken. It was unspoken to me. It was spoken between them that my supervisor Mm -hmm. would actually meet up with me to do my hour of supervision or I think it's. I'm trying to remember in grad school if it's just 30 minutes a week or if it's an hour a week. I think it's just 30 minutes a week. It's post-grad when you do the hour a week. (laughs) Well, anyhow, they had that agreement. And so she all of a sudden she was just like refusing to see me and she wouldn't supervise my hours, which I didn't understand because. Luckily for her, I had a preceptor, so she wasn't really hands-on with me in my internship. We were literally there for me to just discuss my experience and for her to give me some guidance as an experienced um, social worker. So long story short, I ended up just finding a different supervisor, but the worst part of it all was when things kind of went sour, they were kind of trying to push me out of my position once I moved back to Chicago. So it it was kind of disheartening because I was looking to her as like a mentor. And I didn't really understand why Mm -hmm. somebody who was so much more experienced than me would treat me that way. But I came to the conclusion, Right, reminded me of something that my mom told me, speaking of advice, how your mom used to give you advice. My mom once told me something. Mm -hmm. that I'll never forget. She said, Sometimes people, they don't treat you bad or they're not intimidated by you because of what you have or who you are in the moment. It's what they see you're becoming. And for some reason, I thought back to what my mom had said when I was going through that situation and it actually helped me overcome it because I realized, you know, maybe they're out of human nature. And I didn't see myself as, you know anything special but maybe that's how they were viewing me and that's why they were kind of acting neurotic <laughs> I don't know do you have any similar experience or something like that
1: yes and it's funny how a lot of them relate to social work and grad uh grad programs or jobs specifically when I was in I was in grad school I I was and then I was also interning for that facility, but I had two different position titles, um, because our college was, uh, pretty strict. Like they didn't want interns getting paid, which was really weird. So, but I kind of worked it out in a way where I could, because I was also a grad assistant and part of my grad assistants, part of the position during the internship was that we were working on this curriculum for social emotional learning for, uh, the ages of like, two to four. It was like a really, really young age group. And this curriculum, we were, somebody had already like really built the basis of everything. And then I was just going in and I was editing and like, just giving my two cents as like a future therapist. And I was also highlighting the program and implementing it in a local preschool that we had partnered with, as well as seeing clients in a, a community mental health setting where I was also implementing it in groups. And so I, the person that was making the curriculum had told me to not read these certain books. And I was like, huh, like, okay. Like I I just, they like were children's books. And I was like, okay, I just won't read them. And then another one of my colleagues who I had worked with got on the project and she had read the books because she had been a therapist for a little while. And she would use these books with kids in sections. And one day she was sitting there in a session with a kid and she was reading the book and she realized that the entire curriculum that we had been working on was plagiarized. Mm. Yeah. So that was a hot mess because we brought our concerns, of course, to the people that had been directing and supervising and having us do all this stuff. And it was completely pushed under the rug. I was manipulated in a lot of different ways then had to go above their head. And again, they were like, yeah, you know, that's unethical. That's not okay. But then of course, like nothing happens. So I think that was like my first big taste of like living in, I guess, a corporate world where not everybody is ethical. Not everybody cares about you and that you can easily be like put in situations and positions that are not good without you having any idea and Mm -hmm. then finding out and still nothing being done, which is just not fun. And and you're not really prepared for that. Like college is not, there's not a class on that. It's just, you just have to experience it and then hope that you get out. Okay. And without your character or like career being tarnished. And that was scary. That was really scary for me because I hadn't even graduated yet. Right. And you know, in the college world, plagiarism is like, the highest sin crime you could commit so that was that was really hard to deal with but luckily I had a good support system kind of entangled in in the not so good people who believed in ethics and values and you know had my back and was like no this is not okay this is how we need to go about this and sometimes that's just how it works and then now I know (laughs) now I know
0: (laughs) <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, you went through something too that could have really damaged you and scarred you, but you learned to come out of it and you didn't mm-hmm. kind of fall into that neurotic uh trap. Right. So yeah. good for you.
1: Right, but it took like you said a lot of rumination, a lot of self-disputing, like a lot. I had to talk about it a lot because mm-hmm. I just it's hard to process in the moment too cuz You go into a shock, like this is happening, like for real, right? And then you just you go through these stages. I don't know. Is there a stage? I guess a stage of processing, a stage of stages of processing.
0: Yeah, and for those of you who are listening who aren't sure what Kirsten is referring to, she's referring to the five stages of grief. So you can check that out. You can just Google that on your own time. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful. So,
1: final thoughts Mm -hmm. of what you
0: learned from our discussion.
1: Adversity there are positives to it and i think that's a great thing to know just as a as a therapist and a professional so that when we're working with clients we can you know help them process you know what they need to process but then give them that hope because that's one thing that my supervisor always tells me and he was like you never take away a client's hope because that is what is going to help them get out on the other side of things mm-hmm. and to me that's that's one of the biggest things that we we can hold on to just as, as human, as human beings.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. I think um, what I learned about overcoming adversity and what our conversation solidified for me even more is, you know, as long as you can shift your thinking towards something more positive, then you'll be able Mm -hmm. to overcome adversity, even when the negative outcomes appear to be more prevalent. Because one thing that I learned from my experience, and I'm sure you learned from your experience, not having good mentorship, I said, you know what? I'm not going to be that person. When I see someone who is new in the field or who is of a younger generation than me, I'm going to embrace that person because they're not my competition. Yeah. They're, they're looking to me for guidance. What do I look like trying to push them down and stifle them when I can, you know, say, okay, you want to, if you want to learn some things, you want to come to me, hey, you know, let me show you what I know, because I'm only as good as the generation after me. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, to me, yeah. I just think as long as you can shift your thinking to something more positive, you know, you can always overcome adversity.
1: I agree. I agree. And those, and those coping skills. I think, because we talked a lot about that on the episode that you did with me on my podcast, we we were talking about the episode is the increase in, um, suicidal, the problem with the increase of suicidal ideation in children and adolescents was that there's, those are so important. Like even they just, I reiterate them so much with my clients, with my kids, with mindset isn't always from a young age, if we instill that those strategies in kids, these overcoming adversity and things like that just become a lot more manageable.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, Kirsten, it was great talking to you. I'm happy that we were able to do this podcast together We have to do it again.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for checking out this episode and you have a good one.
1: Bye.